MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official Challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Hi, listener. I'm Carol Fisher, the host of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister. I'm so excited for you to hear the brand new season where we're uncovering a 35-year-old mystery. But for those of you who didn't hear season one or just want to listen to it again, you can now get access to all episodes of that first season of The Girlfriends 100% ad-free through the iHeart True Crime Plus subscription, which is available exclusively on Apple Podcasts. You'll also get access to every single episode of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister, ad-free and one week early, only available to iHeart True Crime Plus subscribers. So what are you waiting for? Head to Apple Podcasts, search for iHeart True Crime Plus, and subscribe today. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Weird House Cinema. This is Rob Lamb. And this is Joe McCormick. And today on Weird House Cinema, we're going to be talking about the, oh, I usually say the year, but now I'm not so sure. Was it actually released in 1972? Yes, it was. And I want to stress, Joe, that it was released 1972 of the Common Era. Okay, not 1972 BCE, right. Uh, This is Dracula, A.D. 1972, the Hammer Horror movie starring Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing. That's right. So last week, we not only did a Frankenstein movie, we did one of the best known and most beloved of all Frankenstein movies, 1935's Bride of Frankenstein. And to follow that up, I just I have been feeling weeks in advance like we we would need to do a Dracula movie after that. But which one? Right. There's so many Dracula films to choose from. Uh, We've been talking about doing 1931's Dracula or the or the Mexican Dracula film that came out the same year. Uh, Those, I think, are both fine choices. But I found I was craving not just a Drac movie, but a weird spin on Dracula. Which brings us yeah, back to the world of late franchise ingenuity, uh, which is something I always enjoy. You know, that point in a fr- film franchise where people realize, all right, we've, we've done the same thing over and over again. We need to go in a new direction. We need to spice it up. What can we do? Dracula goes west. Or uh, Dracula in space. That's actually, that's a real movie. Dracula 3000. Yeah, yeah. These, these are all valid choices. Dracula in the Old West has also been done. 
I just love it when a, when a franchise gets maybe a little desperate and starts taking some risks. And that's where we are with the seventh film in Hammer Horror's Dracula series. Uh, kicked it off with 58's Dracula, then 1960's The Brides of Dracula, then Dracula Prince of Darkness in 66, then Dracula Has Risen from the Grave in 68, then Taste the Blood of Dracula in 70. Uh, oh, and then we have Scars of Dracula. I think that's the same year. And then we get to Dracula AD 1972, which had the fabulous working title of Dracula Today. It sounds almost like the name of a publication, like it's a magazine for the modern Dracula connoisseur. Yeah, or I mentioned it to my wife and she's like, it sounds like a morning show, like Dracula hosts the morning show. It's Dracula Today and he's got yeah. his, his hot mug of blood. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, yeah, I think it's so at this point in the, the film franchise, yeah, we're definitely in that experimental mode. And it would stay that way for the duration. Uh, the film to follow this up was 73's The Satanic Rites of Dracula, which I have not seen, but I've definitely flagged it because it's my understanding that it's sort of a Dracula spy movie. Yes, I have seen this one. I've mentioned this on the show before, but uh, this was a an especially hilarious uh, movie viewing experience because I watched it with early YouTube auto generated subtitles with a group of friends mm -hmm. and the subtitles were all wrong. There was one point where somebody I, I don't remember what the actual line in the movie was, but the subtitle took it for uh, the boat carrying general free balls. <laughs> general free balls. OK, I don't think he's established in this film, though some no. of the characters from this film will carry on into the next one. There's also a line that the subtitles interpreted as uh, Peter Cushing or a Peter Cushing type guy answering a telephone and saying, saw it on Twitter and I was shocked. <laughs> All right. So we've definitely flagged that one for later. The, the final Dracula movie from from Hammer Pictures was actually a co-production with Shaw Brothers. It is 1974's The Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires, an East meets West vampires film. Uh, this one's been on the list for a long time. I haven't seen it yet. Um, but, I mean, what, how can you resist such a mashup? How could it go wrong? I, I've got to see that one. So, yeah, today's movie, Dracula AD 1972, takes the Dracula franchise into modern times. In a way, it's kind of a predecessor to 1979's Time After Time, which we previously talked about on the show. Oh, yeah, I can see that. I mean, so in that episode, we came up with a taxonomy of different kinds of time travel movies. Uh, this isn't exactly a time travel movie because nobody actually travels. It, there is no time machine. Nobody leaves the time they're they're naturally in. But it is a generation spanning movie where uh, where the vampire is slain in one era and resurrected in another. So you might expect there to be some. I don't know, kind of uh, a fish out of time elements like we talked about in that episode where the character from the past is forced to deal with how things have changed in the modern world. I must say none of that. There's nothing, nothing like yeah. that at all. Yeah. I, and I've seen some reviewers who more recent reviewers who've commented on that, like saying, why is there not a like a fish out of, of water, a fish out of time uh, plot element to this? And I'm, part of my thinking on that, I'm thinking, okay, well, you don't want to make Dracula look foolish. This film takes Dracula's status seriously. Yes. And Dracula remains like a severe threat. He is just hunger and evil. But on the other hand, as we've seen in other films, it can be done. You can do the fish out of time at least a little bit and have the character that is engaging in it still be fearsome. 
The, the example that comes to mind um, uh, uh, just off the top of my head would be uh, the Terminator. Uh, hmm. it, it's not much of a fish out of time, but there is that one funny moment where he tries to go in and buy a plasma rifle from Dick Miller. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Just what you see, pal. Yeah, it is a funny moment, but it doesn't make the Terminator less terrifying in that film. So there's some sort of balance that would have been possible with Dracula going out at night and feeding on hippies. Um, but Dracula just doesn't get out in this movie and do that sort of thing. That That's exactly the issue. So the movie is trying to be a it's trying to be conceptually fish out of time. It's trying to say, OK, we have this monster from a different era. You know, he he came to London and. uh in, in this movie in the 1870s and suddenly he's here in the 1970s and whoa, it's a crazy context. There are all these hippies and cars everywhere. This is not what we expect to see surrounding Dracula. But Dracula is never like he never meets any of that stuff in his resurrected form. He just hangs out in a church. So I don't think he ever even sees any of the signs of the modern world. Right, right. He's just ordering like takeout delivery. essentially (laughs) the whole time he doesn't get out and see that world uh you know whether he'd be phased by the changes in the world who can say i mean maybe maybe dracula just sees blood at the end of the day and so it it doesn't matter he's like "Uh, it's it doesn't it doesn't matter at all just bring me the blood uh but maybe you could have had some neat moments the dracula in this movie does not seem very impressed or even very reactive to anything around him he you know there's the part where his uh, lackey raises him from the dead and says, Master, I've brought you back. And he just says, it was my will. <laughs> mm-hmm. Walks past him. So I, I don't know. I kind of think that um, that aloofness and high handedness might come through as well. If he were forced to, you know, be around automobiles or something, it'd be like he wouldn't even notice them. He just walked past them. Mm. Yeah, it would have been interesting to see how they would have handled it. Um. Now, uh, one thing I want to mention about this this particular movie is, yeah, with with its elements of like uh, hippies and groovy London um, counterculture to the limited extent that is that it is explored. Um, as I was digging on this one, I was like, oh man, I wonder if this one is Electric Wizard certified because the themes just seem to fit too perfectly for this to not be the case. And so I I looked it up. I I grabbed the book, Come My Fanatics, A Journey into the World of Electric Wizard by Dan Franklin, which came out earlier this year. Um, And it basically is just filled with various movies, (laughs) references and movie mentions uh, Uh uh, that line up with their work. And it it is, in fact, cited as an influence. Uh, Dracula AD 1972 is, is cited as an influence on the excellent 2007 album, Witch Cult Today. I know the wizard, and I can see this movie being right up their alley. They love some some witch finders and some hammer horror and all that good stuff. Yeah, I mean, Satanic Rites of Dracula, obvious. Obviously, there's a connection there. The title of track on the album, Witch Cult Today, reminds one of Dracula Today. And then they also have that Torquemada 71 track, which also has sort of like similarities to the title here. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I can see this one as, as, as having been a strong influence uh, now that I've, it's been pointed out to me. Now, here's a question. This is a convention. I can think of several examples uh, of movies like this where it's Dracula and then just the the number of a year. So there's Dracula 1972, Dracula 2000 and Dracula 3000, which is the one in space <laughs> with Casper Van Dien. Is that one in the year 3000? I guess it's supposed to be. That one's okay. really, really not good, like Z grade, though it does make one 
uh, choice that I really like, which is it sets it in the future. So they're on like a spaceship. I think Casper Van Dien's character is uh, Captain Von Helsing of the <laughs> USS whatever it is. Uh, maybe the Demeter. I don't know. But they, so like they come across Dracula in a derelict spaceship. But then when they wake him up, is he like a spacey Dracula? Is he wearing kind of a spooky space suit? No, he's just dressed in like a Halloween store Dracula costume with like the cape and the high collar and the ruffles. You know, I, I doubt they pulled it off and made it work, but on paper, I respect the choice. I do yeah. like it when Dracula is like powerful in spite of the tropiness of the way he is dressed. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think that an example of that can be found in this movie because Christopher Lee, uh, again, his Dracula maybe doesn't have as much to do, doesn't get to do as much. Uh, killing and, and exploring as we would like, but it is still a strong screen presence. It is still a, a, like a terrifying vision of Dracula. Yeah, I think Christopher Lee is almost always pretty strong. I think he's good in the moments he has, though I do think the movie underuses him. We, yeah. we kind of don't get enough Christopher Lee, and we don't get enough of several of the movie's big selling points. That's true, that's true. Oh, but to come back to what you were saying, yeah, Dracula, 72. Uh, but it was also released as Dracula 73 in France and Spain as it came out in 73. So they had to upgrade the title. Nobody wants last year's Dracula. I mean, come on. Uh, but um, it, it's worth looking up the French poster for Dracula 73 because it's absolutely stunning. It's like, I don't even know how to explain it. It's got this weird kind of, I don't know, almost kind of like uh, Art Deco looking font. And then Dracula's head is like this psychedelic floating visage in the sky, uh, gazing hungrily at bikini women. It really doesn't look like Christopher Lee. It's more like a floating monster mask that is bleeding colors into the stratosphere. Yes. So look that up. It's good. Now, I want to stress that this movie is not everyone's favorite. (laughs) Roger Ebert only gave it one star, single star. Um, Michael Weldon of Psychotronic Film Guide called this one's time jump, quote, a big mistake. And uh, and I even touched base with Hammer fan and former producer of the show, Seth Nichols jo- Johnson, who, you know, again, big fan of a lot of Hammer films. Uh, he says this is not one of his favorites. He likes it, but it's not one of his favorites. Uh, fair enough. I, I think it'll make for a good discussion on the show, but I will, I'll say it's not one of the best Hammer horror Draculas. I think horror of Dracula is much better. No, no. I think to enjoy this film, you've got to be on board for, again, late franchise innovation for some sort of, uh, you know, risky, if not completely um, uh, realized dream of where Dracula could take you. Um, and uh, and I guess also the, the further away we are from it in time, uh, the more it has uh, been allowed to age. Because I know a lot of these commentators were talking about when it first came out. Uh, Weldon criticized it as being already dated when it hit the screen. Uh, but we've, we've had decades for this film to mature, and now we can appreciate it uh, for what it is. I suspect people might have found the hippie caricatures more grating in the 70s. Uh, I find them mm-hmm. uh, delightfully uh, amusing now. Yeah, yeah, I think that could be part of it. All right, elevator pitch for this one. Um, I would say these hippies are such a drain on society. Of course, they resurrected Dracula. It's the dope. It's the devil music. It's the Dracula rights. That's right. My other one that I came up with is parents. Be aware of these warning signs that your 25-year-old teenager may be involved with drugs, sex, black masses, rock music, and Dracula resurrection. 
we do have several parenting scenes where Peter Cushing is 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 trying to exert a positive influence on his granddaughter uh, Jessica. Uh, you know, he he's trying to to figure out like, hey, are her friends on the level? But it, it just doesn't go anywhere. No. <laughs> All right, let's listen to some trailer audio. Yesterday, Dracula was the most fearsome being the screen has ever seen. Today, tonight, you, you, you could be Dracula's next victim. Something new, yet as old as time. Come on, Johnny. A date with the devil. Are you ready? He's ready. He's waiting to freak you out. Right out of this world. Died September the 18th, 1872. A hundred years ago to the day. You who witness it must swear before the name of the devil to keep it secret. Who knows about vampires, for God's sake? My grandfather died fighting a vampire. The most terrible, the most dangerous vampire of all time. The year is 1972. A leap year in horror. A vintage year for vampires. The time for the masters of horror to meet again in the 20th century. Well, if at this point you would like to go watch Dracula AD 1972 for yourself, well, you're in luck because this one was released through Warner Brothers, so it's widely available. Uh, it's even currently available in the States, at least on Max. It looks like they have a number of, of Hammer Horror flicks in there. So, uh, yeah, go crazy. You can also get it on basically any physical or digital format you desire. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Rob, as the uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray to treat your allergies. What was your experience like? Yeah, that's right. I always wrestle with the pollen a bit when it rolls in during the spring. So they sent me the little uh, nasal spray. I tried out the product and yeah, it sure did help me get on top of my symptoms for the day. And it's so fast acting, uh, it was already kicking in before I left the house. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It's the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription-strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Astapro and go. Uses directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. 
I'm Elliot Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true, and I'm not offended by that. Thank you for, for going through those things, and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Uh, thank God for the limits. Every time I have like one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a, in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor. Gene, was booted. Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene. I understand now. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Jean. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Jean, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, let's do those connections. All right. The director is Alan Gibson, who lived 1938 through 1987. Canadian director who worked a lot in the UK with TV work going back to the mid-60s, but it's his horror work that most remember him uh, for today. His credits include 1970s uh, Goodbye Gemini, which I believe is some sort of uh, you know scary twin movie. Uh, this film, of course, and its follow-up, 1973's The Satanic Rites of Dracula. He also continued to work in TV and directed episodes of the anthology series Thriller, Tales of the Unexpected, and Hammer House of Horror. In fact, one of the Hammer House of Horror episodes he directed was The Silent Scream, starring Peter Cushing, but also a young Brian Cox, who was actually, I think we did the math, he would have been like 34 at the time. Wow. It's hard to understand that I'm looking at Brian Cox younger than I am now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he, he came out with, I mean, Brian Cox has always made a career of, you know, playing... Uh, at least, you know, heavies and um, formidable personalities, formidable personalities. Yeah. Uh, not so much, um, you know, leading man type stuff. So, you know, he's one of those actors who perhaps even early on always looked like he was in his late 40s, at least. Mm -hmm. But great actor. I haven't seen the episode, but I might have to seek it out. And you said it's also got Peter Cushing. Yeah, yeah. Peter Cushing, you know, was just, uh, he was he was on speed dial for Hammer. They needed they needed him for something. He's like, yeah, is it a movie? Fine. I'm there. TV show? Great. I need to fly to China? Great. Let's make it work. It's nice to have steady work. Yes. All right. The screenwriter for this one is Don Houghton, who lived 1930 through 1991. British television screenwriter and producer whose writing credits include 13 episodes of Doctor Who from 1970, The Satanic Rites of Dracula, the Seven Golden Vampires movie, and also another Shaw Brothers Hammer co-production from 74, an action picture titled Shatter, 
I believe Peter Cushing is in that one as well. <laughs> okay. Is it about a man who has the power to shatter? I don't, it looked like it's kind of like crime or act, crime action, maybe spy. I'm not sure. You know, it's one of those non-horror hammer films that perhaps mm. gets re-explored less uh, in the modern era. I see. All right. Well, who's playing the title character of Count Dracula? Well, of course, it's Christopher Lee, who lived 1922 through 2015. We've talked about Lee before on the show as he's popped up in numerous films we've discussed already and is just going to keep popping up because he's an icon of horror. Uh, But here he is in one of his most iconic roles, uh, the one that influenced his casting and presentation in late career hits like like the Star Wars prequels, like Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings films. Uh, he was, I think, rather famously tired of playing Dracula at this point in, in, in his career, or at least tired of playing Dracula the hammer way. I'm um, to understand the 1970 Jess Franco picture, Count Dracula, was more in line with what he wanted to do with the character at that point in his career. But still, uh, again, it's a great screen presence. And one can only imagine that he enjoyed working once more with his friend and long, longtime co-star of 22 films, Peter Cushing. What, what is his, do you know what his take in the Franco Count Dracula is? How's it different? Uh, I haven't seen it in its entirety yet. It's been, it was actually a film I was considering for, for this month on Weird House because it's supposed to be, first of all, not as sleazy as other Jess Franco films. Like it's a little more mainstream, has a great cast. Uh, you have like Klaus Kinski playing uh, Renfield in it. But it's supposed to be more of like a sympathetic, tragic Dracula. Mm-hmm. And I'm to understand it's the first Dracula film in which we initially meet an elderly Dracula who is then made young again through the consumption of blood. Oh, OK. So this has many things in common with what would later happen in Bram Stoker's Dracula directed by Coppola, which we were just talking about in uh, our core episodes earlier this week. Yeah, yeah. That has the at least partially sympathetic Dracula, adds in a love story for Dracula, which I uh, want to emphasize is not in the book. Dracula is not in love. He, he does not romance in the book. He is just a demon. He's just bad. And that also has a Dracula who, when Jonathan Harker first meets him in Transylvania, he looks very old and decrepit. But by the time he reaches London, he is young and rejuvenated and old many. So, yeah, the Dracula that we get in Dracula 7, AD 72 is certainly the, the demonic Dracula. In fact, they call him the demon vampire in the, the prologue uh, to the picture. Uh, he is just pure supernatural hunger. Uh, he has more in common with the Terminator than some of the more sympathetic uh, film versions of Dracula that, that uh, we've seen uh, in, in this film's wake. Yeah, just a mean, nasty, vengeful, uncomplicated demonic vampire. Now, I mentioned this earlier, but just to get a little bit in deeper into it, I feel like Christopher Lee is good in this movie. But one of my major complaints about the film is that it is reserved in the deployment of its key selling points, one of them being Christopher Lee. He he uh, he's a kind of he's an ineffectual vampire. He doesn't have a lot of lines and he has limited screen time. And that screen time is confined to basically just two locations. It feels almost like they were trying to make sure they could shoot all of his scenes on the same day. And you could see how his like the fact that he never leaves the church he's resurrected in in the modern era. Unless he I don't think there's ever a scene of him going anywhere else. Is there? I can't think of one. Um, I don't think so. Yeah, so he's just there. So you could say, well, that 
that speaks to his power, right? So, you know, he just stays there and he has his servants bring him victims. So, like, he doesn't, he's so powerful, he doesn't even have to go out hunting. But I, I don't know. I feel like this movie would deliver more on its promise of Dracula 1972 AD if it had both more of Dracula on screen and, and going out and doing things in the world and had more of the world of 1972 AD, which it's, it's also actually relatively tame on, uh, save for like one silly party scene. I think what they should have done is have Dracula go to the coffee bar while it's like hopping and everybody's partying. And he goes and I don't know, I guess he wouldn't dance, but he would at least like get, get encounter hippie culture there. Yeah, like kill Mick Jagger in the street or something, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I think just one sequence of him feasting on hippie blood elsewhere in London would have gone a long way. And if you were determined to have him not leave the churchyard, maybe just like one scene where he like looks out the window at night and like sees what's out there. You could even play it up like, oh man, if Dracula gets loose in 1972 London, it's all over. Like that's when he has to be stopped here before he has reached uh, full feasting power again. But they don't really explore any of those ideas. I mean, it's easy to forget because the book itself is very old now, but I think one of the themes in the novel Dracula is the Mm -hmm. idea of some part of the old world coming into the new world. It's that like, you know, it uh, that this, you know, figure from a decaying castle in the Carpathian Mountains out in the forest at at the uh, at the edge of Europe, as these people would have thought of it, coming to the, the biggest metropolis that they knew of coming to modern London. Yeah, that's a great point. So it's it's already built into the text uh, quite a bit there that he is he's traveling across time and space to something new. And yeah, and and to come back to time after time, one of the great serious uh, threads in that is that when Jack the Ripper arrives in the modern era, he's like, "This place is great. Like, I can really thrive here." Like, and uh, yes. and you know, and of course that would come later that film, but uh, a similar vibe I think would have gone a long way here. All right, so that's Dracula, but you can't have a hammer Dracula without a hammer Van Helsing. And that's where Peter Cushing comes in, playing, uh, this is technically going to be a dual role, because he starts off playing Lawrence Van Helsing, but then will go on to play his descendant, Loramir Van Helsing. I got some notes on these names. I'll come back to that. So uh, uh, Peter Cushing lived 1913 through 1994. Again, we've discussed Peter Cushing on the show before, and he's just going to continue to pop up because he was, he was uh, like Christopher Lee, just an iconic player in horror and sci-fi cinema of the day. Uh, and I think he was even more prolific. Uh, he's one of those actors that everyone seems to have had nice things to say about, both personally and professionally. Just a consummate pro, no matter what the material had him doing or saying. He always... He always brings an air of dignity to, to most pictures. Mm-hmm. Um, this movie is from the later stage of his career after the death of his wife in 1971. In fact, filmed just eight months after her passing. Uh, this is a, an event that apparently took a huge toll on him. In fact, he was apparently originally intended to be to uh, play the father of the character Jessica Van Helsing in this movie. But he had visibly aged so much since his wife's passing that they rewrote the script a little bit to make him be her grandfather. Oh, okay. So, you know, I think we might be forgiven for viewing films from this era of his career and detecting that loss and that distance in his screen presence, especially in the various examples of films that cast him as a man who's experienced a great loss. But, you know, that being said, again, consummate professional, 
Um, he does a solid job in this. And I'm to understand he actually does his own stunts in the opening, which is, oh, wow. which concerns like a thunderous carriage <laughs> based action sequence. So it's, you know, it's not just like, oh, he, you know, he fell out of a chair. No, like he's on a, like a moving carriage. It looks kind of dangerous. And apparently he does whatever stunts are required of him there. Wow. I'm impressed. Well, I, I was going to say that, you know, I love Peter Cushing, but I'll admit sometimes he, he phones it in. You know, give him a break. Mm-hmm. He did a lot of movies uh, and a lot of very similar movies. But strangely, I thought it, it seemed to me he was putting a lot of feeling into this one. Uh, this is not one of his best written roles, but he really exceeds what is required of him. And uh, he there, there was more emotion in this performance than I expected. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's not just about the man who must defeat the monster, but there's like someone in his life he's trying to protect as well. And not only protect from supernatural threats, but also just sort of ambiguous social threats as well that he's concerned about. Yeah, his protective care for his grandchild comes through as genuine emotion. Yeah. Yeah. Now, playing that grandchild, Jessica Van Helsing, is Stephanie Beecham, born 1947. This is our young, prematurely white-haired descendant of the original Van Helsing. Uh, Stephanie Beecham is an English actor of stage, screen, and television with a very long and still very active career. Uh, She'd mostly done TV and stage at this point in her career, but had popped up in some films, including Roddy McDowell's Tam Lin from 1970 and The Nightcomers from 71. After Dracula AD 1972, she acted in 73's And Now the Screaming Starts, 76's House of Mortal Sin and Schizo, and 1981's Horror Planet. Her TV credits include 49 episodes of The Colbys, 23 episodes of Dynasty in which she plays Sable Colby. I'm not sure how this works, but I'm guessing this is the same character. There's some sort of like, I don't know if this was a spinoff of Dynasty or... Or if, like, a character from the Colbys joined the cast of Dynasty. I'm not sure how soap operas really work. I don't know either. But anyway, it was apparently a big role for her. It's, like, the top thing that's mentioned on her, on her IMDb page. But she was on other stuff. She was, like, on The Love Boat. Um, she apparently played Margaret Thatcher on an episode of ALF. Life goals. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So th- there's that. I could not find a screenshot of it. I was really looking for it. Could not find it. But she's also been on things like Star Trek The Next Generation, Sequest, in Coronation Street. Uh, I think she's quite good in this, though. She has the the same issue that almost all of the teenagers have, which is that none of them seem like teenagers. I think yeah. these, I don't know how old they're supposed to be. I would guess they're, they're supposed to be like, I don't know, 18 to 20, but they all come off as about 30 or at least late 20s. Yeah, I think I, I think she was like 25 at the time. Not really a problem. I just think it's funny when movies have these these groups of all extremely adult teenagers. All right. The next actor of note is uh, Christopher Neem playing Johnny Alucard. Um, this is the droogish occult enthusiast in the group of friends that we uh, we meet, uh, the, the young Londoners. He cares about only one thing, and it is, of course, the resurrection of Dracula. He is a Dracula cultist. It's interesting that I think there are a lot of stories that where people become the servants of a satanic entity or demonic overlord so that they can pursue a party lifestyle and hedonistic pleasures like the powers they acquire by serving the demon lord 
give them the ability to party the way they want to. He's the other way around. Johnny Alucard parties in order to serve a demon lord. Like he apparently only does the like swing and hippie thing in order to attract a group of friends who can be brought as snacks to the vampire that he wants to resurrect. That's right. Johnny Alucard just wants to do Dracula stuff. That's all he wants in life. uh, And he's going to do whatever it takes to get there. So Johnny Alucard is played by Christopher Neem, born 1947. Uh, He has a great look. He brings some great hungry energy to this role as a Dracula cultist and vampire wannabe. Uh, He kicked off his film career in the 1970 environmental disaster film No Blade of Grass, followed by 71's Lust for a Vampire. These are small roles, I'm to understand. But this role in Dracula AD 1972 seems to have been a big step up for him. He goes on from here to work steadily in all manner of pictures and TV shows, including 30 episodes of Days of Our Lives, uh, 1987 Steel Dawn, a really weird-sounding 1988 sci-fi horror film titled Transformations. Uh, He did episodes of Dynasty, episodes of Dallas. He pops up in the 1989 James Bond film License to Kill, in which he plays the agent that is sent to collect the rogue agent James Bond. Mm, yeah, okay. This is the one where uh, Bond go. Uh, he like quits MI6 and he goes on a mission of vengeance. Yeah, this is the one uh, where, um, uh, oh, what's his name? Explodes. <laughs> Ro- Robert Davi feeds his friend Felix to a shark and leaves yes. a note saying he mm-hmm. disagreed with something that ate him. And so yeah. James Bond uh, goes, to, goes to kill Robert Davi. Yeah, and Anthony Zerba explodes, right? I think that's how it goes. It goes uh, maybe, yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, Christopher Neem was in a bunch of stuff. He pops up in Ghostbusters 2, playing a Maitre D. Uh, he's in the Hulk Hogan film, Suburban Commando from 91. He's in the, the 1994 Chuck Norris film, Hellbound. He's in Species 3 from 2004, and then goes on to be in The Prestige from 2006. <laughs> Just a, a bunch more all the way up through 2019. He's perfect in this. He's got a uh, creepy, malevolent, froggy smile. He just, uh, he looks like he's up to no good. Yeah, dangerous youngster. Uh, they're very droogish. He also just gives strong, like, cult leader. It's like you see mm-hmm. him and it's like, get this guy a cult stat. Yeah. <laughs> All right. We also have the law present in this film, uh, investigating uh, matter, matters that turn out to be Dracula-related. Uh, we have Inspector Murray, played by Michael Coles, who lived 1934 through 2005. This is our chief law officer investigating a stream of strange murders in London. Um, he's presented as a more progressive and sympathetic policeman, but at the same time, he's totally down to invoke draconian drug laws in order to weed out dangerous hippies. Yeah, I'm going to say no offense to Michael Coles. He does fine. But this oddly shaggy and in some ways sympathetic detective character feels like it was meant for David Warner. Oh, well, yeah, David Warner would have been good. I mean, David, what you could cast David Warner in anything in this film and he would have he would have nailed it. Um, As for Michael Coles, uh, he would reprise this role in 73's The Satanic Rites of Dracula. So I guess the the. Investigation continues. Um, His other credits include 1965's Doctor Who and the Daleks. All right, we basically, as far as the the uh, the cast goes, there are just a couple other people of note. These are other members of the the youth group. Uh, Well, it's not a youth group; that makes it sound like it's church affiliated. These are some more of the swinging Londoners, uh, the young people. The first of which is the character Gaynor, played by Marcia A. Hunt, born 1946. 
She's a, an American model, singer, actor, and later author and editor. She only acted in 11 films, but they include such titles as 1982's The Cinder. It's like a psychic sort of scanner-esque uh, flick. 1983's Never Say Never Again, a Bond film. Howling 2, Your Sister is a Werewolf, Oof. which is obviously part of the, uh, the the ups and downs of the the Howling franchise. Her uh, bibliography. <laughs> Her bibliography includes uh, an autobiography, a memoir, and the 1990 novel Joy. Her discography includes three albums from the 1970s, and she was also famously in a relationship with Mick Jagger, and the two had a daughter together. Oh. She's one of the more friendly presences in the the group of London hippies, though uh, she tragically is eaten by Dracula, like, like several right. characters are. The another doomed character <laughs> that fits the same description, uh, for the most part, is Carolyn Monroe's Laura Bellows. Um, we've talked about Monroe on the show before because, uh, yeah, she was a pinup model and actress who stole many of '70s film nerds' heart with such uh, genre appearances as The Spy Who Loved Me. 77, uh, Maniac in 1980, Slaughter High in 86, The Golden Voyage of Sinbad earlier in 73, Captain Kronos Vampire Hunter, another Hammer picture from 74, At the Earth's Core in 76, and also Star Crash in 78. She also has a just slight cameo as a picture of Dr. Fibes' um, wife in 1971's The Abominable Dr. Fibes. She is the main character in Star Crash, isn't she? She's still a star? I think so. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. She's right there. She's 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 on the poster. Yeah, she is also eaten by Dracula in this movie. And her character is is just gaga for demons ever yes. since there's a, like the moment uh, the Johnny Alucard brings up, hey, what if we did a black mass? She's like, yes, yes, do it now. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Yeah, she's kind of presented as the well, of course, she was killed by Dracula because she was a bad hippie. Uh, so. Um, so yeah, what? early victim here, but I don't understand. Like, why is she so into demons? There are several characters in this movie who have a history of like investigating the occult. So like, it's an established interest of theirs. Mm -hmm. She, it seems like she's never thought of it until Johnny Alucard brings it up. But the moment he's like, let's summon the Prince of Darkness. She can't think of anything else. It's like, this is all I want now. Yeah. I mean, I guess it's, you know, I guess we've, we're already thinking about it deep more deeply than anyone involved in the film i think but you know maybe she's supposed to be just sort of like the shallow enthusiast of the occult mm. that doesn't realize that there are um you know in the world of this film real threats involved in trying to summon up the spirit of a slain uh, dracula uh, creature from the past that sort of thing mm -hmm. all right we're going to skip over the rest of the the youth in this film and just get right to the music the music is by Michael Vickers, born 1940. Uh, he was a member of the 1960s band Manfred Mann, uh, who I'm not familiar with. But um, the the score and soundtrack for this film is widely available. And I have to say, it's a lot of fun. Most of the score tracks are very jazzy. Lots of blaring, like horn or saxophone or whatever, as Dracula and Van Helsing chase each other around. But he also gives us a wonderful Black Mass track titled Devil's Circle Music that is... Uh, you see it being played on screen. It is the soundtrack to the Black Mass that is conducted in the in the picture. And it itself is a beautiful, creepy cacophony of satanic sounds. So part of me wishes the whole score for this movie sounded like that. But on the other hand, I really like the cheesy content of this film. So uh, I'm, I'm glad that we have the blaring jazz present as well.
I'm Elliot Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true, and I'm not offended by that. Thank you for, for going through those things, and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for the limits. Every time I have like one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a, in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor. Gene, we'll boot it. Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene, and last hour on the business. I understand now. He's a wise man, Marie's a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Jean. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh! Jean, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return, your time won't, and we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, then look no further than the Marketing School podcast hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast in the United States and number 15 on business in the United States. And it has amazing guests such as Alex Hermosi, Layla Hermosi, Cody Sanchez. We pull in these amazing interviews with other people that are not only great marketers, but actual operators. And the icing on the cake is Neil and myself were also operators as well. So we share learnings from the trenches. We share secrets that we otherwise wouldn't be sharing with other people. And we also share other advantages that will help you get ahead of your competition. So all you have to do is listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, with all that behind us, Joe, take us to 1972. All right. we be Well, no, we don't start in 1972. Oh, oh, well, that's right. We start in 1872, right? That's right. I'll, I'll take you to 1872. How about that? How about we start right. there? Okay, we begin with dead leaves blowing in the autumn wind. Um, and I noticed I noticed in this opening sequence, in some shots, uh, Rob, I don't know if you saw this too, in some shots, the trees are just packed with dense green foliage. And in other shots, they have orange and yellow leaves and fewer of them. And then in, in a third kind of shot, they're completely bare. I wonder why that is. Could it be that different shots in this, like, I don't know, minute-long carriage chase were shot at different months of the year. That seems unlikely, but I don't know. Maybe it's just different kind of trees or something. Hmm. 
I was on guard for this because I saw like at the in the very first shot, uh, orange leaves are blowing on the ground, but the trees in the background are fully green. And it reminded me of John Carpenter's Halloween, which you may have never noticed this before, but it's like that. I think it was actually shot in the summer, even though it's supposed to take place in October in, in Illinois. Mm. So I think they had to like bring in bags of dead leaves to dress the, you know, the sets. Reminds me of the neighborhood that, well, we both live in. Um, occasionally there are film productions and there was that one, I think this was like in the summer where they were filming something for Halloween and they, uh, they decorated the whole street for Halloween, like, like movie level Halloween, um, uh, decorations. And it was, it was pretty fun. Like sometimes film productions can, you know, can, they can get in your way and then you, you can be a little grumpy about them disrupting your morning commute or whatever. But that, that film shoot, God bless it. Oh, good Lord. Yes. Yeah. Uh, uh, Halloween in July. Thank you. I'll, I'll take it. Um, so, yeah, we get the, the leaves blowing. We see red calligraphy letters on the screen. This has a hammer production, and it's that calligraphy font that makes the word Bathory look like Batlord. Okay. Uh, a, a horse-drawn carriage is racing along on a parkside pathway, goes over a stone bridge under an archway of, of these dead tree limbs. And a narrator comes in. Narrator says, the year is 1872, and the nightmare legend of Count Dracula extends its terror far beyond the mountains of Carpathia to the Victorian metropolis of London. Here in Hyde Park, the final confrontation between Lawrence Van Helsing and his archenemy, the demon vampire Dracula. Now, I told you I was going to come back to the name of Van Helsing in this movie. You did hear that right. It is Lawrence Van Helsing. For some reason, I'm not sure what, uh, this movie and maybe at least one of the other Hammer Horror Draculas calls this character Lawrence. Of course, in the novel, Van Helsing's first name is Abraham. No offense to all of the wonderful Lawrences out there for what I'm about to say, but this name change is not great. A, a Van Helsing, whose friends call him Larry, does not bring the same gravitas as Abraham. Mm, yeah, yeah. So why the change? I don't know. Could it possibly have to do with intellectual property? That uh, seems, I don't know, kind I don't of know. I mean, that would be the main reason to change up the name of a... Uh a particular character and of course historically we would have seen movements like that before concerning the dracula property yeah but i mean it, but it's called dracula so it would have to be something specific to that one character like they could use the last name and the rest of the plot and dracula but not abraham i don't know it's confusing hmm. uh so anyway the movie opens with uh, the the ending of this other tale. We see Dracula and Van Helsing already in the middle of fighting to the death on the roof of this carriage as it races through Hyde Park. They're sort of wrestling. Dracula is choking Van Helsing until suddenly the harness that's holding the horses to the carriage snaps. The, the horses run off. The, the carriage veers off the path and crashes into a tree. Uh, Van Helsing is thrown aside into the grass, and Dracula, when we see him stagger out from behind the carriage, is impaled on the spoke of a carriage wheel, an accidental stake through the heart. Dracula and Van Helsing fight a little bit more while Drac has a, a wheel stuck to him, so it's just kind of poking out of him. Uh, but eventually Dracula is defeated. Uh, Van Helsing kind of shoves the, the stake into the heart further and then he uh, does the classic undead turbo rot so dracula collapses into a pile of bones and then that turns into ash and dust by the riverside van helsing also collapses dead 
So at this point, the entire multi-film struggle between Professor Van Helsing and Count Dracula ends in a vehicular accident, (laughs) (laughs) which I think would feel mighty underwhelming if this were like the end. But this isn't the end. This is the beginning. So I guess we'll allow it. A freak accident takes both the demon vampire and his 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 chief adversary takes them both out of action. But wait a second. Who's this creep back here watching everything go on? There is a young man observing the scene. He'd been following the carriage on horseback. He comes galloping in wearing a top hat. Uh, and he's a little guy with a scuzzy mutton chop sideburn set and a, and a toad-like grin. And he produces a glass vial and scoops up some of uh, Dracula's ashes after he turbo rots. Uh, Van Helsing's just laying there dying. He ignores Van Helsing. He also pockets Dracula's special ring. Uh, it looks like it's made of silver, but I don't think that would make sense for Dracula. So it's some kind of pale precious metal ring yeah maybe pewter or something maybe he can wear pewter i'm not sure dracula's lead ring (laughs) that would fit right yeah he doesn't have to worry about lead uh so we cut to a funeral scene after that uh and it's all of van helsing's friends and family gathered in a churchyard where the good doctor's body is being committed to the earth Uh, and it seems most of the mourners are variations on the monopoly man Shiny top hats, coats with tails, all that. It's mostly dudes at the funeral. And we're not introduced to any of them. We don't know who from the novel Dracula actually showed up at the man's funeral. Like, yeah. I, I, I feel like it would be a little bit insulting if Jonathan Harker didn't show up at Van Helsing's funeral, right? I mean, did they really know each other all that well? They, they just kind of got together for a work project <laughs> one time. Well, yeah, they were their work friends, right? So yeah. Okay, uh, so, oh, another funny thing is the line we hear the priest say at Van Helsing's funeral, he's quoting the Bible, so we, like, come in and and he's saying, Man that is born of woman hath but a short time to live and is full of misery. And I know that's the Bible, but, man, is that really what people want to hear at a loved one's funeral? It's like, not only do we die soon, it's mostly bad until we get there. Yeah, yeah, not, I don't, I don't want that read at my funeral. Oh, but a, a quick side note related to recent core episodes. You know, the next line after that in, in the book of Job, this is from Job chapter 14, uh, after the, you know, it's a uh, 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 short time to live full of misery. The next line is, he cometh forth like a flower and is cut down. He fleeth also as a shadow and continueth not. Hmm. Anyway, so that funeral's going on. Meanwhile, the creepy guy who collected Dracula's ring and ashes, he shows up at the funeral. He digs a hole in the ground just outside the churchyard, pours Dracula's ashes into the hole, and then drives a stake, the same stake that killed Dracula, into the soil above the hole. And then a marvelous transition. We get <laughs> jet wipe. Jet. We, like, look up to the sky and there's a jet plane wipe and the and the funky music comes on mm-hmm. and the jet comes <laughs> down and we see the title Dracula 1972 AD very good very good use of a jet plane absolutely it's like bam now it's modern times look at the jet plane the music has shifted from old timey gothic horror movie to this, this thoroughly modern, jazzy, funky number. And yeah, my only note here is that we're denied footage of Dracula flying first class. I mean, he's not actually supposed to be in that airplane. But, you know, again, it's like you want the, the movie seems to promise this idea of Dracula is in our world now. And it never quite gives us that. I think they should have done a Pong wipe. So it's wiped to a screen of people playing the Atari. 
<laughs> but it's not Pong. It's an airplane. And then what are they going to use to show? We, we got to get like a 1972 montage, right? Show us some footage of what it means for things to be modern. What does that mean in this film's conception? Primarily traffic. So we're just seeing like complex highway exchanges teeming with cars set to saxophone and wailing guitar solos. Yeah, yeah. I I guess that's all they really want to convey about the modern world, that it's busy. And, you know, (laughs) the world's fast. It's in a hurry. But meanwhile, Dracula is patient. Dracula is long lived and is crossing oceans of time. (laughs) to uh, reach the year 1972. And then from here, we cut straight to a party scene. Now, this is the scene where I think they were, the movie was trying to pack in all of its uh, modern debauchery into like one five to seven minute sequence. That's right. With but but their hippies are not like all is it not like uh, we're dealing with a bunch of sort of grind housey like evil hippies or anything. These are all like, for the most part, likable, fun, goofy kids. Again, I think most of them are at least in their mid-20s. But still, goofy kids having a good time, enjoying the musical stylings of Stone Ground. Stone Ground. That's the name of the band. They are playing... Um, let's see. how do I, So the scene is like hippies versus more Monopoly men, but Monopoly mm-hmm. men from 1972 instead of 1872. This party is taking place at an elegantly decorated apartment or flat uh, belonging to rich people full of breakable antiques. There is a buffet table set up with champagne and ice buckets and a bunch of food. But I paused it. Almost all the food appears to be fruit. I guess they thought Mm -hmm. we wouldn't look too close or maybe they just really like fruit. Um, Also, several hippies are making out underneath the buffet table. The band Stone Ground is playing in the living room. There are go-go dancers on top of the piano and on the sofa table. Hippies are dancing, presumably doing drugs, though I don't think we see any drugs being done, and uh, getting up to sexual behavior. And uh, all of the the rich, posh people are, are scandalized. I can't stress enough that Stone Ground, as a band, looks like what might happen if you took the Muppet Show band and portrayed them as human beings. Yes. Um, there's like a human Muppet show band. Yeah, yeah. Or or like Fraggles, like the Fraggle band. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Michael Weldon wrote in his review, quote, a party sequence with the American band Stone Ground is a real low point. Oh, uh, come on. I now. would disagree. But then again, I'm, you know, we, we, I think he was, he was writing this a little closer to the original release time. Um, I would say that it's a goofy good time. That also advances the plot somewhat, introduces us to a key character, uh, which we'll get to in just a second. Um, I think you can say, well, perhaps there are some 70s bands that would have been better suited in, to this film than Stone Ground. I wouldn't say I love the music, uh, but they do appear to have been a real band and all. Like They, they don't just exist in this film. Uh, Sal Valentino was the singer, noted for his earlier work in the 60s group, uh, the Bo Brummels. Uh, they did the song just a little, and I think they had another hit. Um, and various members of Stone Ground went on to other things. One of the songs they play at this party is uh, is just very generic lyrical content. It's like "Oh yeah, come on" or something. But the other song is called "Alligator Man," and all of the lyrics are about how like I'm just a bayou man, you know. You can find me in the bayou because that's all I do. I swim in the water. I'm an alligator man. Uh, I think he says, I come from an alligator clan. 
And I was just looking at the scene. I was like, these are not alligator men. If anything, these are lamprey men. Yeah. I mean, that's, uh, it's kind of a credence vibe, right? Where it's like perhaps not authentic swamp music. <laughs> oh, I don't know. I go credence. They're out. Al- they're alligator men to me. John Fogarty. Yeah. Come on. He's an alligator man. The credence was great, but did they come from an actual swamp? I don't know. Maybe I've never looked into it. <laughs> if they don't have a swamp thing origin story, then I'm going to say it's 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 a bit of an act, but it's a fun act. I always like I like love, love Credence when I was younger. I still love Credence. Wait, okay, but in the middle of this whole scene, we got to explain. So the hippies are dancing, the band is playing, all the rich people are are horribly offended, and in the middle of the scene, um, hey, it's that same reptilian creep that scooped up Dracula's ashes 100 years ago. If anybody's an alligator, man, it's him. He, mm. you know, he's like got these creepy eyes. He's staring at everybody. Uh, and I don't know if he has like not aged since 100 years ago or if this is supposed to be a descendant of that other guy. Either way, it's the exact same dude. It looks exactly the same, except he is now... I don't know. He's dressed sort of for the era. He's wearing a frilly pirate shirt, a burgundy velvet suit, and a black wide-brimmed fedora. So, cool. (laughs) I think he's supposed to be a descendant because Dracula later says something to him about his bloodline. Uh, Ah, that would make sense. So, like, Uh, there's been a long line of Dracula enthusiasts, some of whom never got to meet Dracula, which would be kind of a bummer, right? Yeah, yeah. They're just... You know, bridging the gap between generations. Yeah. Oh, and also we learned that his name is Johnny Alucard. Smooth. Ah. We're uh, not going to spoil. We're not going to spoil it yet. We're not no. going to tell you <laughs> what Alucard means. Uh, what? It, what? We're not going to tell you what it is spelled backwards. This is their kingdom. Right. Um. Yeah. Johnny Nilbog here at the party. He's gazing out from under the brim of his fedora while everybody else has a good time. He doesn't look like he's having a good time. He's just sitting there watching with no expression. Uh, of course, all of the fancy rich people are, are mortified. They're baffled about how all of these disgusting partygoers ended up in their flat. This old lady who's kind of a little bit Angela Lansbury-ish, uh, she's like, what, you know, to her son she's like why did you invite all of these monsters and he says i didn't they're not my friends all i did was to invite the stone ground but that just left me more confused i'm like why did he invite the stone ground he invited this band well because stone ground is just a household name stone ground appeals to audiences of all ages the old the young the the hip the square Everyone loves Stone Ground. That's one of the film's early key messages. I understand now, yes. Oh, but there's one thing in this party scene that I think does not make sense and did not work at all. It's the bit about timing how many minutes until the police arrive. So the the guy who invited the Stone Ground goes and calls the police to get all the hippies out of his apartment. And then the hippies, the, the friends all start being like, oh, the, the fuzz will be here in four minutes. No, it'll be six minutes. It'll be three and a half minutes, eight minutes. And they're arguing with each other. And they explain that they have a running practice where I guess they party somewhere where they're unwanted until the minute before the police arrive and then they leave. And it's not really funny and it doesn't really make sense. It sort of lacks verisimilitude, but the bit just keeps going on. It's a rather different relationship between hippies and law enforcement in this film versus certainly reality. But also I'm reminded of 
uh, The Living Dead at the Manchester Morgue, uh, where, you know, it's firmly established that the man hates hippies, mm-hmm. that the that law enforcement just despises them. Uh, whereas in this film, it's like, ah, they're, they're fun-loving. It's a fun-loving uh, competition, you know? It's like, oh, you got me today, hippies. We'll get you tomorrow. Yeah, uh, that yeah. sort of thing. And in the spirit of the, that sort of teasingness, like when the police arrived to bust up the party, uh, oh, they, they discovered the, the hippies making out underneath the buffet table. And one of the hippies just says to the cop, peace, man. And the cop <laughs> smiles. Um, but also, there's a thing where when Johnny Alucard is about to leave the apartment, he takes the time to stop and torture the old lady about uh, breaking her priceless antiques. Like he picks up this ceramic figurine and is tossing it hand to hand and then just when she thinks you know he's setting it safely down on the table he tips it over and it breaks on the floor ho ho yeah yeah, he's a chaotic youth he doesn't care about anything but so they split from the party they go to their favorite coffee shop except is it daytime now i'm a little confused about the timeline uh but they go to their favorite coffee shop and the coffee shop is called cavern and this place is great i wish i could go there yeah, I, I kind of have to assume that what we see of the interiors is a set, but it's a great-looking set. Uh, we got the like splashes of tile and all sorts of cool purple lighting. Like it just looks too cool to be a real space, but I could be wrong on that. And then they order up what I at first I thought was like bowls of soup and Coca Colas, but I think this is supposed to be coffee and or yeah. tea plus Coca Colas. I think it the, there are Coca-Colas in glass bottles, but yes, the soup bowls are, are coffee cups, I think. Okay. They're just very wide and shallow for some reason. Oh, and I made a note that uh, Cavern is right next to a store called Chelsea Mail, M-A-L-E. I don't know. Hmm. Maybe that's clothing. I don't know. Anyway, at the coffee house, uh, the hippies sit in a secluded booth, and Johnny Alucard talks about how everything's just boring. I'm sick of it all. It's all stale. We've got to find a new way to get our kicks. And he says, I want something new, yet as old as time. And he's got an idea. They, They all want to hear what his idea is. He leans forward, and he says, a date with the devil, a bacchanal with Beelzebub. So they think he's joking around at first. Oh, you're just Josh and Johnny Alucard. Ah, ha, ha. Ouija board, spirit mediums. That stuff's a bunch of funny nonsense. But Johnny Alucard is not joking. He's serious. He says, don't knock it unless you've tried it. Uh, And then Jessica, the most intelligent and level-headed of the group, comments, well, they do say it's dangerous. But at the other side of the table, Carolyn Monroe as Laura is here like, yes, yes, devil. Take me to the devil now. Uh, so everybody eventually agrees, last of all, and reluctantly, Jessica, but they're all in. They're going to go to um, to an abandoned London church later tonight at midnight to summon Satan. I don't know. I guess that's just how you have fun. It, I, this may come later, but I did I did like the way they set up how various members of the friends group are going along with this, where I think Jessica's boyfriend is like, ah, this is, you know, it's like, yeah, Johnny's enthusiastic about it, but you know what's going to happen. We're going to show up. Somebody's going to get out a guitar. I'm going to have some food and some drinks. It's like, it's just going to be more or less like any other hang we do. Uh, It's just Johnny's going to read some weird stuff beforehand. Yes. He said there will, it'll just be beer, food, guitar, and loving in the end. Mm Mm-hmm. I'm Elliot Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes 
I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for, for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for the limits. Every time I have one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a, in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your host of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. <laughs> oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed, and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, then look no further than the Marketing School podcast hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast in the United States and number 15 on business in the United States. And it has amazing guests such as Alex Hermosi, Layla Hermosi, Cody Sanchez. We pull in these amazing interviews with other people that are not only great marketers, but actual operators. And the icing on the cake is Neil and myself were also operators as well. So we share learnings from the trenches. We share secrets that we otherwise wouldn't be sharing with other people. And we also share other advantages that will help you get ahead of your competition. So all you have to do is listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. But before we get to the uh, summoning of Satan, we see a few little, uh, there's some interludes. First of all, we see Johnny Alucard head home to his sweet flat, which uh, his flat seems very cool. Uh, it's like well-decorated. I don't know. It, it doesn't have that uh, bachelor quality to it. Yeah, yeah. I know what you mean. It, it feels like this is more space and it's uh, in better shape than than Johnny should have access to. He should have more of a like a little hovel with Dracula posters on the walls. Uh, <laughs> turns out the good guys are the ones with Dracula posters on the walls. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, so he goes to his house and he he opens up a, a velvet box and inside <gasps> it's the ring. Yes, Dracula's ring. The one we saw the guy who looks exactly like Johnny take off of Dracula's corpse earlier on uh, and the vial of ashes. So he's he's got him. We also follow Jessica home, and this is where we learn that she is Jessica Van Helsing, and her grandfather, who she lives with, is Professor Lorimer Van Helsing, also played by Peter Cushing, uh, again, a descendant of Larry from the pro prologue. 
Um, and Grandfather Van Helsing is an expert on the occult. He has consulted with the police before to solve cases of ritual cult murder. And he comes into his office, catches his granddaughter reading his book, which is called The Treatise on Black Mass. He says, Jessica, this is not a subject to mess around with. These are scientific works. <laughs> but she mocks it. She says, uh, you know, you can buy that kind of book in any shop in Soho. Quote, it's all kinky, you know. Uh, she says it's hobgoblins, black magic, etc. So she she thinks it's all nonsense, has no interest whatsoever in the occult, and in fact seems to think it's it's not even superficially interesting. She like thinks that uh, she can't bring her friends over to this place or to meet him because it would be interminably boring. But wait a minute, Jessica, don't you know that your friends are are obsessed with summoning the devil? Like they just expressed this extreme interest in the occult and here she is like i can't my friends could never find out that you're an expert on the occult it would be so embarrassing <laughs> yeah jessica is is a bit of a brat and i think intentionally so like he has to politely uh move her feet off of his desk when he comes in and finds her reading the the, the book of the occult um but at the same time it's it's they do a great job letting us know that yeah he really cares about her and she really cares about him but there is this you know some awkward generational stuff where you know the stuff grandpa's in too is just lame and yeah she's kind of blind to the fact that there is this strong connection between what's about to happen in her friend group and the kind of stuff that grandpa actually knows quite a bit about yeah he patiently explains that you know our family has a legacy of research into the occult and she's just like it's not my bag baby it's like the difference between a friend uh, saying like, hey, I have this Doobie Brothers album. And then your grandpa saying, hey, I've got Doobie Brothers albums, too. Like, it's not fair <laughs> right. that grandpa is considered lame because he has this album uh, and your friend has a, a pass because uh, he just discovered it. But that is how it works. Mm -hmm. No accounting for the social influences on taste formation. Mm -hmm. Uh, anyway, oh, but also he's like, hey, uh, what if I what if I was to get to meet your friends? You know, I wonder who th th these people you hang out with all the time. Who are they? And she's like, uh-uh, you're never going to meet them because <laughs> this place is boring and dusty and old and you're an expert on the occult. So you will not meet them. But she tries to reassure him by saying she has never dropped acid. She is not shooting up and she says she is not sleeping with anyone just yet. So he has no reason to worry. She is into nothing wrong. And then she goes to meet her friends at the deconsecrated church to raise the devil. <laughs> yep. Uh, so this black mass, oh, what can we describe about the scene? Uh, well, first of all, there's a thing about the tombstone she, on the outside. She and her boyfriend, Bob, are, are talking before they go into the church. Uh, they're waiting to meet everybody. And they stumble across the tombstone of her ancestor, Lawrence Van Helsing, who died 100 years ago to this day. Yeah, which they initially think, oh, this is one of Johnny's jokes. This is not funny. Uh, they, they get a little disturbed over this. It's one of Johnny's jokes. He had a fake tombstone made and put in this churchyard. <laughs> I don't know. You know, they're just they're they're they're, they're trying to figure it out. Um, other thing I would say is uh, is that this this abandoned church is just a, is a great set. Yeah. It's a great like gothic setting for what is inevitably going to be the resurrection of Count Dracula. That's right. So Johnny Alucard is there. He's wearing an all black robe. He has everybody sit in a circle and listen to music. He says, no fooling around. This is for real. And the tape he plays sounds kind of like the drum solo in Inagata Vida, which is a thumbs up from me. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. It has this kind of like noisy, grimy quality to it, which I quite like. And again, you can you can hear this track is included on the soundtrack and score, along with those stone ground tracks if you need to listen to those. That must provide an odd contrast. But he he's really telling them to get into it. He says, dig the music, kids. Let it flow into you. Give yourself up to the music. And this reminds me of Christian tracts that I have read, uh, genuinely espousing the idea that rock music will like get, will allow a demon to possess your soul. Yep, yep. Johnny Alucard seems to agree with that point of view. And then he starts uh, he starts naming demons. You know, he says, I call upon Address, the grand Marquis of Hell. He says Marquis, uh, provoker of discords and upon Ronway, demon of forbidden knowledge and upon Behemoth, the archdevil of black delights. I call upon Asmodeus, the destroyer and Astaroth, friend of all the great lords of Hades. I demand an audience with his satanic majesty. He just and he goes on and on names like 15 more demons and ends with count dracula which even in the context of the movie for some reason it just kind of sounds funny in this list of uh i don't know biblical or at least like apocryphal or hermetic kind of entities maybe but at the same time i don't know we, we've talked already on the show i think in listener mail episodes about marvel's dracula and how in the marvel comics universe dracula will occasionally have interactions with the likes of dr doom so mm. um you know, if Dracula That's can good. can hang out with Doctor Doom on the moon, then I feel like it's it's equally okay that his name is mentioned in the same um, prayer uh, as these various other dark and powerful demon lords. So he says all these demons, but then he calls the name of Jessica Van Helsing. She's right here in the room with us. She's here listening to the music. She's digging the music as instructed, and he says that the demons have chosen her. But she is afraid. So she says, no, she's not going to join him up at the altar for whatever comes next. But somebody's ready. Somebody wants to be to go to the altar. And it's Laura, uh, played by Carolyn Monroe. She's extremely jealous. She's like, no, me, 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 me. Um, and so it looks like it's going to be Laura instead for whatever this ritual will be. He, so she goes up, lies down on the altar, and Johnny Alucard cuts his hand, bleeds into a grail full of Dracula's ashes, and then pours them out on her. And it gets really thick and frothy. And this is disgusting. She's now covered in ashy blood. Everybody gets freaked out and runs away, except for Johnny and Laura. And of course, the ritual works. It, you know, it uh, resurrects Dracula from the earth where his ashes were buried a hundred years before. And then Dracula is shown shot from below. You know, so we're looking up at him like he is the Statue of Liberty, but a vampire. And he's surrounded by smoke and quite regal in his, uh, well, as Johnny said, in his satanic majesty. And I thought this was pretty effective. Like at this point, I'm really digging like, oh, yeah, this is Dracula. This is the real deal. You've summoned him. And th like this is an incredibly dangerous situation for everybody involved. But this is the part I mentioned earlier where he is right off the bat, extremely high handed with Johnny. Johnny says, Master, I did it. I summoned you. And Dracula just kind of scowls at him and says, it was my will. And then holds out the ring for him to kiss. Well, he's not going to suffer any, even if this is like, you know, a, a bloodline of, of, uh, of toadies that are supposed to look after Dracula's interest and raise him from the grave. Like, he's not going to suffer a, a wizard uh, trying to pull one over him here. It's, right. He's going to establish right from the top that Dracula is the guy in charge. Right. So he goes into the church. Laura's still hanging out there. He's like, uh, I guess I'll drink her blood. And he does. And, and meanwhile, Johnny is looking on 
biting his knuckle like, I wish that was me. And at first I thought he was thinking like, oh, I wish that was me drinking her blood. But then I realized, no, I think he's like, I wish that was me getting my blood drank. Because mm-hmm. that's what he ultimately wants. He wants the, 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 the kiss of cursed immortality. So the next day, uh, Laura's body is found by kids playing in a construction area. Uh, they're sort of the kids from the Spirit of Dark and Lonely Waters commercial. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just sort of wild, unparented 70s children running around, finding dead bodies in the <laughs> in the rubble. I mean, this, this is just how it went. I, I was born in the 70s as well. Yeah, let's go climb on that rebar. Uh, <laughs> the police show up. They open a murder investigation, uh, and it is led by Inspector Murray. This is the detective we talked about earlier. Inspector Murray, in turn, consults with Laura Van Helsing. I think they have a pre-existing relationship because Van Helsing knows all about weird occult murders. And the detective then reveals that the murder is connected to his granddaughter, Jessica, because, uh, because Laura was part of her friend group. They do acknowledge at one point, uh, or Inspector Murray does, talking with somebody else, I think one of the other police investigators, he's like, well, you know, here in the UK, we don't really have cult murders like they do in America. Uh, you know, they're, <laughs> not, right. they're, not, yeah. they're not as complicated as that and as heavy. Uh, we, we, we have some cult murders, but it's, you know, it's, it's, a, it's more British here. So there is a, an investigation portion of the movie in the middle here that uh, had one scene that had uh, Rachel and me rolling. It was the the <laughs> alu card scene where, man, they really, they don't skip over anything. They let you see the whole thing come together. Spoil it for us, Joe. Tell everybody what alu card means. Well, <laughs> so that you see like uh, Peter Cushing there with a card and he has written Dracula out on this piece of paper and then he's drawing lines from the letters in, in Alucard to the letters in Dracula and they all cross over and he's like, it's it's Dracula spelled backwards. <laughs> the 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 uh, Dracula cipher, right, or Alucard cipher, um, as, as if he just solved like a really complex puzzle here. Uh, when it's just so obvious on the page. But again, it just shows you how great Peter Cushing is. Um, such a stupid scene, <laughs> but he, <laughs> he sells it. He, he patiently brings dignity to the scene. He draws, he doesn't just like write out Alucard and then look at it. He like draws all mm-hmm. the lines. He does every letter. You know, he's checking his work. And I guess we have to remember at this point, in in Hammer Cannon, anyway, nobody had uh, had solved the Dracula cipher yet. They didn't know what this meant, and so we had to watch him do it in real time. That's true. It's like one of those math conjectures, you know, remains unproven. Mm-hmm. But this is this is also good parenting slash grandparenting tip uh, that we're seeing here. Find out who your your uh, your, your your child or your grandchild's friends are. Write their names on a sheet of paper and just check and see if any of their first or last name happens to be Dracula spelled backwards. I just knew I shouldn't have let my child play with uh, Eoj Nifok. (laughs) Sorry, I don't have any paper out, Joe. I can't fact check that one to make sure that's okay. Well, then you must be one of the idiots inferior. Uh, okay, so uh, what happens next? So uh, maybe I'm going to skip more lightly over some of the plot points that follow. But uh, one one sequence is Dracula. He really wants to eat uh, Jessica Van Helsing. Actually, I think he wants to turn her into a vampire, right? To really just mm-hmm. fully defile the name of Van Helsing. He wants to not just kill the end of the Van Helsing line, but make her a servant of the devil. 
That's right. That's his, his evil plot for revenge here. So the way they're going to make that happen is Johnny Alucard. Does he invite Jessica Van Helsing to go to the jazz spectacular with yeah. him? Yeah. He's like, Hey, I got tickets to the jazz spectacular. Want to come? And she's like, uh, no, 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 thank you. I'm doing something else. And then Gaynor's like, Hey, I, I'm looking to go to a concert. <laughs> What's he going to do? Well, he figures out I can at least feed Gaynor to Dracula. Yeah, but this this doesn't go over well with Dracula because Dracula, you know, rightfully so, is like you. This is not what I charged you with. Uh, we have a specific plan for vengeance here. Uh, I will drink her blood and kill her, uh, but you need to bring me uh, the descendant of Van Helsing. And then, but John, Johnny Alucard is like, well, but you haven't given me any powers, and he um, and he basically does kind of like a there's like a labor standoff. Yes. Uh, here in the film. And uh, Dracula caves. He's like, all right, I'll give you the powers. So he bites him, turns Johnny Alucard into a vampire. And then Johnny Alucard, actually, before he gets on with the business of, uh, you know, of getting Jessica Van Helsing, he just goes out and gets a snack first. Right. And he, he like finds a lady in a laundromat and eats her. Yep. Yep. Just starts committing random vampire murders. But at some point. Jessica's boyfriend, Bob, he comes to get her at her house. Now, she's been warned about things at this point mm -hmm. by uh, by her her grandfather, Van Helsing. But uh, Bob comes and says, I think he says, uh, oh, you know, your grandfather and the police are at the cavern. They're interviewing everybody and you need to come there now. Was it was that the story? I think it was. I believe so. Yes. And in this scene, he strangely has a bandana tied around his neck. <laughs> mm, yep. Did you see this one coming? Yep, yep. So he does take her to the cavern, the coffee shop, but it's not the uh it's not the good guys, it's the bad guys. That's right. It's a game of cat and mouse here between uh, the Van Helsings and House Dracula. So eventually Jessica is taken to the deconsecrated church. I think it's St. Bartolph's. And Dracula hypnotizes her but doesn't vamp her yet. I think he's waiting for like the big midnight ritual or something. In the meantime, we get Van Helsing on the case. He's trying to he's trying to find out how to, to rescue his granddaughter. And he ends up going to Johnny Alucard's house where they have a battle. It is Van Helsing versus a vampire, not Dracula yet, but the the vamp, the, the sort of young vamp. And I thought this was a good battle. I like this scene. Yeah, yeah. I mean, to, to be fair, this is the first vampire that this Van Helsing has ever battled. Yeah. Um, and they, they do a good job, yeah, of making it a little um, a little unexpected. Like, for instance, earlier in the film, there's a little foreshadowing where they remind us that there's a, an often ignored bit of vampire lore that says that uh, moving water or moving fresh water, I think clear they say in water. this film, yeah. clear running, running water will, uh, you know, destabilize them or slay them or something. So I wonder if that'll come into play here. Yes, yes. I think he says that at the police station or something. Mm. Um, he's listing all of the things that will harm or won't harm a vampire. Some of it's just superstition. But yeah, clear running water and a cross and a Bible, that'll do it. Uh, so there's a great move he has here where Johnny Alucard, like the sun is rising in the window and, and he's trapped. He's got to get back to his coffin so he can rest during the daylight. But then Peter Cushing throws a Bible into his coffin. <laughs> he's like, oh, gotcha now. Oh, yeah. Sleep on that. And it's, this is like a full size one, too. It's not one of those little pocket ones that, uh, you no. know, you could just maybe like sleep around. But no, no, there's no sleeping in that coffin without laying on that Bible. It's ruined. Right. This is that's a Kathunk Bible. 
So they battle, but eventually Johnny Alucard falls into the shower. The water starts running and this destroys him. Like the water's running over him and he's screaming. He's like, turn it off, turn it off. (laughs) And Van Helsing's like, where is Jessica? But he won't say he's just getting obliterated by water. Yeah. Is it the best vampire death in cinematic history? No. Is it at least inventive? Does it give us something a little bit new? Then, Then yes, I think so. Yeah, I kind of like this one. It seems actually like plausible from a folklore standpoint. That sounds like something Mm -hmm. that could really uh, be believed to harm a vampire in some scenario. And uh, yeah, I I don't know. It was different. I liked it. Yeah. I guess there is a bathtub scene in The Lost Boys. There's something, but that was like a bathtub full of holy water, I think. Ah, okay. I've forgotten about that. If memory serves. Also, Lost Boys came later. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Much later. But eventually, Lorimer Van Helsing does go to the church to confront Dracula, and there is a great trap-setting scene. He digs a pit outside the church, and he fills it full of wooden stakes. He takes his trusty silver dagger with him, which he has showed off several times before, and there is a showdown, a final battle in the church. And uh, there were a couple parts here that I thought were actually kind of scary. I don't usually expect to find anything all that frightening in a hammer horror movie, but like the part where Dracula is chasing Van Helsing up the spiral staircase into the tower, I thought was quite menacing. Yeah, because really throughout the film, they do a great job of establishing Dracula as such a threat. And suddenly in that stairwell, it's like everything is so claustrophobic. And there's this Mm. feeling of just being in an enclosed space with something that is just beyond even a vicious animal, just pure bloodthirsty hunger. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, so they have a showdown. Uh, there are sev- There's kind of a fake out here. Van Helsing stabs Dracula with his silver dagger, but Dracula is aided by the hypnotized uh, Jessica Van Helsing. She comes up and pulls the dagger out of him and uh, and her grandpa is like, no, Jessica. <laughs> uh, this one caught me up in the moment. You know, you, you know, the movie's not going to end like that. This movie's only ending one way. But getting caught up in just the sort of the spirit of the film, I was like, oh, man, this is this is bad news. But of course, we saw him dig that trap earlier. Right. And Mm, and so the trap comes back in the end. He throws holy water. Van Helsing throws holy water on Dracula that kind of burns him. Yow. And he falls into the pit. And then to really drive it home. Uh, Van Helsing like get, grabs a shovel and like shoves Dracula down onto the wooden stakes with the shovel, and this breaks the spell over Jessica. They're all right, and uh, I guess some of her friends are still alive. Her boyfriend's dead, but I don't know. A few of the hippie group they're still kicking around. Yeah, I don't know if they're going to hang out much anymore, but yeah, some <laughs> survive. Uh, I will say, in this movie, you had two different scenes with the melting vampire, so you end up. Uh, melting the same vampire twice in the same picture, they mm-hmm. at least made sure to uh, to have the second vampire death look even better than the first. I have mm-hmm. to say that this this one looked really good and gnarly, and I liked it quite a bit. Agree. Uh, so that's all I got for Dracula AD 1972. Uh, I enjoyed this one. I'm not going to I'm not going to say it's the best Dracula movie I've ever seen. But if you're looking for those early 70s vibes and you want some Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing in there, too, it's it's perfect. Yeah, I'm not going to recommend Dracula AD 1972 to everyone. But if the title Dracula AD 1972 um, uh, stirs something inside you, then, yes, you must see this film. And I encourage you to do so. It's way better than Land of the Minotaur. (laughs) Yes, yes, 
I would agree. But the score for Land of the Minotaur was better, so I don't know. Uh, yeah. But Land of the Minotaur didn't have Stone Ground. That's right. If they'd only had the musical stylings of Stone Ground. All right, we're going to go ahead and close this one out. Uh, but as always, we remind you that we're primarily a science podcast. Real science, not the, the Van Helsing branch of science. Uh, with core episodes on Tuesdays and Thursdays. But on Fridays, we set aside most serious concerns to just talk about a weird movie here on Weird House Cinema. If you want a full list of the movies we've discussed over the years on Weird House Cinema, head on over to letterbox.com. That's L-E-T-T-E-R-B-O-X-D.com. Our username there is Weird House, and we have a list, and you can see all the films we've talked about. You can go back through the archives there and see, well, what other Dracula movies have they watched? I guess kind of, sort of, two or three other Dracula films. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, J.J. Posway. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts are wherever you listen to your favorite shows. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine. Hosted by me, Danielle Robay. And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Hi, listener. I'm Carol Fisher, the host of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister. I'm so excited for you to hear the brand new season where we're uncovering a 35-year-old mystery. But for those of you who didn't hear season one or just want to listen to it again, you can now get access to all episodes of that first season of The Girlfriends 100% ad-free through the iHeart True Crime Plus subscription, which is available exclusively on Apple Podcasts. You'll also get access to every single episode of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister, ad-free and one week early, only available to iHeart True Crime Plus subscribers. So what are you waiting for? Head to Apple Podcasts, search for iHeart True Crime Plus, and subscribe today.